0: Thanks for downloading Development Drums, episode number 45. My name is Owen Bader from the Centre for Global Development, and today we're looking at whether and how development economics can do a better job of understanding human behaviour and what we can learn from the small but growing field of behavioural economics. I have the perfect person with me to discuss these issues. Varun Gary is World Bank senior economist and was co-director of the 2015 World Development Report, which was called Mind, Society and Behaviour. Dr. Gary has a long list of publications in a varied number of top journals, including in political science, development and economics. He's now researching a subject very close to our heart here at CGD, which is how individuals support public goods. Viren, welcome to Development Drums.
1: Thanks so much, Owen. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, I propose to organize this discussion in three parts. In the first part, I'm going to ask you to lay out for the audience um, some of the key insights from behavioral economics and behavioral science, and perhaps explore with you how these ideas differ from conventional economics. Then, in the second part, we're going to look at what this means for development policy uh, in particular. So, what do we know about whether these cognitive issues and behavioral issues uh, affect the poor? Do, Do they affect the or in particular, and if they do, what, if anything, can or should people do about that? And then in the third and final section, we'll talk about the implications of all this for the work of development professionals uh, and organizations like the World Bank and and aid agencies. To what extent uh, do these biases and mistakes affect development professionals and the way uh, they do their work? Um, Is libertarian paternalism, as as the phrase goes, an appropriate stance for aid agencies? And we'll look at the big picture of whether this is an important new insight for development policy or whether it's a a quirky sideshow in in the bigger picture. So let's start with behavioural economics. Can you tell us a little bit about why this report is called Mind Society and Behaviour?
1: So the main message of the report, Owen, is the idea that development policy is due for a redesign based on a more realistic understanding of how human beings think, decide, and behave. And uh, it's useful sometimes to begin with a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's think about the airplane cockpit. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I are of a certain age and might recall walking into a cockpit many years ago in which it was basically a wall of instruments, Mm -hmm. For technological reasons, there was a separate dial for different bits of information, altitude, wind speed, longitude, temperature, this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. This was very cognitively demanding for uh, pilots.
0: So they had to monitor all these different instruments simultaneously? They had to visually
1: scan everything. They had to remember what it said a few minutes ago and then integrate it when it came time to make a decision, like choosing an angle of of approach Mm -hmm. uh, You know, when it came time to land. And this was related to pilot error. So the cockpit was redesigned. Uh, in more recent years, partly as a result of technological innovations which allowed these, this information to be integrated. And so now one uh, panel um, will show multiple bits of information. You know, flight path has mm-hmm. altitude plus speed and location all in, all in one thing, in one bit of information. And it's easier for pilots to make decisions. A pilot error goes down. So that's the basic idea. That is that, um, directly speaking to your question, Whereas we traditionally think of economics as the science of scarcity, you know, mm-hmm. scarce land, scarce human capital, scarce money, uh, even scarce information, economics hasn't to this point integrated the idea that cognition itself is a scarce resource. Right. It's demanding to actually think. Uh, and this, isn't, this is not a metaphor. In fact, when you think hard, your pupils dilate, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure goes up. Uh, the same is true when you try and exert willpower there's, the, there's one pool of energy that's available for emotional, cognitive, and um, physical uh, activity, and we deplete it. And as a result of this, um, we need to be thinking about how to shape the choice environment to allow people to make good decisions that are in their own interest without overly depleting themselves. So
0: this has become quite a well-known idea in in the last, well, since Daniel Kahneman's book in yeah. 2011, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, the idea that some of the decisions we make are automatic decisions, and some of them we ponder and consider, and that when we make these automatic and fast decisions, we often make mistakes. Exactly. And it, is, that an, is that the key insight in behavioral economics and behavioral science? Um, and tell us more about that insight. Tell us, tell us what that means.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a crucial. It's a crucial idea. Um, it's called dual systems theory. This mm-hmm. idea that there are sort of two systems in the mind, and this is sort of metaphoric. But um, the idea is that you have a, a system one, to use the lingo that mm-hmm. I know Kahneman d- uses, uh, drawing from others. Um, Which is very intuitive and fast. Mm -hmm. You know, we sort of can decide whether the boss is angry at us very quickly, or we can compare whether object A is longer than object B very quickly. Um, We do this involuntarily. We use the system involuntarily, and sometimes we can't help but to uh, use it, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding short sentences in our own language. We sort of can't help it. It doesn't use up energy. System 2, which is, you know, 17 times 24, you know, it's sort of long calculation. It's c- comparing proportions as opposed to quantities. This is demanding, and this uses up energy. So as a result, we try to avoid using system the System 2 and rely on System 1, and that's pretty good for many of our decisions. Um, the System 1 sort of helps us assemble coherence in our world. Um, it helps us with certain basic cause and effect questions. But it doesn't. Uh, but it also can go astray. Um, it goes and it goes astray in systematic, predictable ways. This is really the, um, you know, if one were to ask why this report now, mm-hmm. um, it's that now over the past twenty, thirty years we have a body of research that allows us to show that people are not only irrational but predictably irrational. Right. To borrow a book title from Dan Ariely, you know, so that we know that certain phenomena like anchoring and framing, um, you know, a loss aversion are going to be most people exhibit these and as a result we should design policies to keep that in mind.
0: So in conventional economics, the kind that I was brought up with, yeah. we were uh, taught that people make mistakes a mm-hmm. lot mm-hmm. but that um, we should, w- w- that we could assume this is Friedman's key point in mm. the, I guess the 1950s That mm. was that we could assume that people on average behave as if they're not making these mistakes because yeah. if for example in, in, an investor is systematically making mistakes, they'll be mm-hmm. um, uh, they'll lose their money. Yeah. If a firm is systematically making mistakes, is failing to serve its customers, they'll be driven out of business by a competitor that doesn't make those mistakes. Yeah. So, w- the conventional economics view is: yes, of course, people get things wrong, mm-hmm. but we can assume that on aggregate, yeah. they're going to converge on getting things right, and and it, you know. It, one example of that, I suppose, in the thinking fast and thinking slow framework is that you develop heuristics that work for you. So you, 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 yes, you're thinking fast with rules of thumb and, and with habits, but if those habits weren't in the long run delivering what you really wanted and what your uh, underlying objectives were, then you would change the heuristics. You'd change the rule of thumb. So, hmm. um, sure. so, so why, isn't, why isn't that conventional view... Um, why doesn't that still mean that all, although people are making mistakes, they're not making systematic mistakes?
1: Yeah. So two thoughts. There are a lot of non-market transactions, right? So if a businessman, businesswoman goes out of business for using incorrect characteristics that may be fine, and it, you know, if we've got enough social safety nets and this and that. But for a poor person, going out of business is not a, it's not a happy story, right? right? Uh, not going to school when you should is not a happy story. You know, marrying the wrong person, not getting health care when you need it. Going out of business is a threat to life and livelihood. So the, the existence of these one-shot, non-market interactions where there is no opportunity or limited opportunity to learn and limited arbitrage opportunities are scenarios in which we really need to pay attention to this. Right. And the other thing is that these, in fact, do survive in large markets. You know, um, they're interesting. You know, there are a variety of, you know, number of studies on this now. But if you look at the uh, used car market in the U.S., Mm -hmm. the price of a car that is Eighty thousand that has whose odometer reading is eighty thousand and one hundred miles is systematically higher and much higher uh, than a car that's seventy nine thousand nine hundred miles. People have left digit bias, and despite the fact that you know there is an arbitrage opportunity here, the cars are still priced at one or two hundred dollars higher for not an obvious reason. Um, and so, these do survive in markets um, uh, because people um, are. Um, all affected in consistent ways, you know. So that if I'm affected by a certain set of biases, you, in fact, are also subject to the same biases. You might not take advantage of the arbitrage opportunity that's there.
0: So, what what's a good example of this um, thinking automatically versus thinking slowly issue that affects uh, people in poor countries? And then we'll move on to the uh, the other aspects of this, like um, thinking socially. But let's yeah, yeah. let's give an example of thinking automatically.
1: Yeah. So. One of the challenges that we often face is that, you know, governments provide uh, programs, you know, conditional cash transfers, health, education programs, you know. um, Sometimes people don't take them up, you know, particularly in poor environments. Why not? Um, The payoff might be quite large, but they simply don't necessarily do it. Um, And it's partly because it takes effort, it takes time, even though in the long run it may make sense to take advantage of this, in the short run people don't necessarily so in, uh, there was a study in Tangier in Morocco, in which the government was providing a credit subsidy for a water hookup. Mm-hmm. Right, a water hookup is a big problem, in, mm-hmm. in, you know there, and uh, people spend I think seven to nine hours a week collecting water, often women, but people weren't signing up. Why is that? Well. There's the hassle factor. You've got to sign up for the darn program. Um, and so when some researchers came in and went to the homes of people and actually photographed the necessary documentation and brought it to the um, municipality, the, the, uh, the um, sign-up rate went up to 69% from a baseline of 10%. So the implication there is that there's a large agenda related to simplification.
0: You know, Right, but that's not necessarily an irrational um, uh, Judgement on their part. If people believe that it's going to be um, time-consuming and expensive for them mm-hmm. to queue up and sign up, yeah. and if they attribute, if they think there's some risk that even having signed up, is they're not going to get the service that they're expecting, yeah. then they could easily be making a rational cost-benefit calculation that it's just not worth their while to do this thing. It, uh, but uh, it's, I it's mean, no- who are you to say that they've made an irrational decision there?
1: Well, the fact that when you help them they actually do follow through on it suggests that many of them in fact would prefer the water hookup, you know, if it were so uh demanding on time and cognitive resources. So it is you know, it may be rational in the sense that they don't want to expend the cognitive resources okay. to sign up for this, but it's not rational in the sense that the cognitive resources are not, uh, are renewable. Right. Know, and they don't quite, right. uh, That's just, where we sometimes miss that.
0: But they're temporarily finite, right? I mean, they are, there's a flow of cognitive yeah. resources. So a- uh, am I okay to say, <clears throat> okay, well, this is conventional economics, but with the addition of this important insight that cognitive resources are scarce? And so people are making decisions about how to deploy those cognitive resources. And so that's a rational decision, not to exert cognitive resources on a particular problem—is um, that yeah? Uh, I, 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 I mean, is that okay, or is or is there some other insight that tells us that the conventional economic way of thinking about this isn't right?
1: Um, that's you know, in the report we talk about the principle that people think automatically, the principle that people think socially, and the principle that people think with mental models. We're, we're talking about the mm. first idea right. now. And I think that's more or less right. I mean, I think it, it, it's important to point out that it applies not just to uh, cognitive overload and in information, but to willpower. Right. Um, and that people often have a hard time following through on their own commitments. You know, we might want to save more, or lose weight, or stop smoking, and we just can't follow through because we uh, overvalue the present. If we're going to model the situation, or because the willpower exertion is too large. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I'm not so sure whether it's worthwhile um, getting into a debate about whether this is a rational choice or not on the part of individuals to overvalue the present or to not exert cognitive energy. Um, The the fact is that in the development business, we want to reduce poverty and that we can take steps to help people achieve what what is their own ends. Whether it's rational or not, whether it can be incorporated into an economic model, that's sort of inside, as they say in the U.S., inside baseball. Um, But... uh, the larger point is that people do behave this way, whether or not
0: it's rational. So let's move on to the second insight about thinking yeah. socially. What's yeah. what's that about? And Give us an example.
1: So, so, so just to return to the cockpit metaphor again, uh, there's there, there's research that suggests that social hierarchy in the cockpit affects is also related to pilot error. And this is because in the relationship between captains and first officers, you want information to flow. Mm. You know, if, if a plane's going down and you know, the first officer shouldn't be reluctant to say... Uh, please lower the wheels now. You know, we're coming close to landing. They should be able to just talk. And if there's a social hierarchy, they won't necessarily speak up. So that social relationship is related to pilot error. In 2013, the American Heart Association came out with a study that found that social hierarchy in the operating room is related mm-hmm. to cardiac, uh, um, uh, among cardiac surgeons, is related to is to, hospi- to surgical error. Um, and so... In those high-stakes situations, you know, we know that uh, this is uh, important. Um, uh, the point we want to make is that poverty is also a high-stakes situation. You yeah. know, we don't often think of this because of a, the cognitive error of salience. You know, we don't think of poverty deaths as being that salient, but an airplane disaster that really gets our attention. But you know, your listeners know that poverty is high stakes. You know, seven point right. six million avoidable deaths among kids every year. Um, so. If we think about thinking socially, right, the comparison with standard economics is that in standard economics, the idea is that people think by themselves and for themselves, right? right? They sort of don't, they, they information comes to Optimizing their them, own well-being. Right, their own well-being, you know, right. with uh, right. basically using their own knowledge, right? right? Um, in fact, um, social preferences are quite large. The standard assumption is that everyone's a free rider, right? right. Given the opportunity, you want to stick it to someone right. else. Um, there are now behavioral economics experimental games that show the um, uh, percent of free riders is, is between 5 and 40%, you know, at most, usually much less than 40%. Most people are conditional cooperators. That is, they're willing to contribute to public goods if the other person is too. They don't want to be suckers. Right. But if the other person is likely to, they will too, right? So most of us are, are not the jerks, you know, that standard economics may assume. Um, and this seems to be hardwired, um, you know, there's a, a fun little experiment that's described in the report in which um, at a tea bar or coffee bar, um, uh, uh, employees were asked to contribute a little bit of money whenever they took the tea, you know, mm-hmm. on, on an honor system. Um, and each week, the experimenters vary the picture uh, right in front of the, the, the tea. Um, uh, So it was one week, it was a picture of flowers, then eyes, and flowers, and eyes, and flowers, and eyes. And every week, their contributions were higher when it was eyes than when it was flowers, because people felt like they were being observed. And so we are social animals, um, and we are... Very responsive to this idea that others are around us and others are acting. You know, um.
0: but interestingly, that that suggests that people are not um, contributing because they're hardwired to contribute to the social good, but because they're um, because they fear being observed. That they that suggests that suggests the opposite, doesn't it? The, 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 it depends uh, how
1: you interpret uh, what happens when you're observed. Is it fear or is it like? I want to be with this person. You know, there, there, there's a, a variety. I mean, this But if
0: people don't feel they're being observed and then just take the coffee anyway without contributing. That people that, still, that, people that still suggests contribute. That that people, people are instinctively free riders if they think they can get away with it. Uh, it's not the case that
1: contributions were zero when they were flowers. Right. There still were contributions. It's just that they were higher when they were eyes. Right. right. Um, so. Uh,
0: and there uh, is a rationale, isn't there, for, for this kind of behavior, which is in repeated Games and we'll, and I think we're in repeated interactions yeah. with our fellow human beings. Mm. Societies work well if um, people are rewarded for cooperating and mildly punished when they um, don't, you know, there's some retribution if people free ride or don't cooperate. Yeah. And, and we'll do better in a society if if that kind of discipline is enforced. And you, you see this with these ultimatum games in yeah. behavioral science that people do tend to want to um uh, resist uh people who don't cooperate and and they do that presumably because it's in the long run best interest of their community to to continue that kind of social pressure
1: that may be but um you know in these ultimatum games even when they're one-shot games you know people do not offer uh,
0: do you want to explain the ultimatum game sorry i introduced it and then failed to explain it yeah explain an ultimatum game
1: yeah so uh There are games that in behavioral economics in which people try and measure social preferences. Um, In let me start with the dictator game. The dictator game, I give you Owen, you know, ten dollars, ten pounds, and I say, give Mm -hmm. Varun some money, and you decide whatever you want to give. Um, And the finding there is that um, people typically, you know, uh, do give something. You Mm know, the the standard assumption is that people would give zero, but that's not what we observe. In the ultimatum game, you give me some money. I'm told that you had 10 and you gave me some, and I have a choice of either accepting your offer, um, let's say you gave me three and I keep three and you keep seven, or saying, forget it, none of us gets anything. And if typically, you know, on average, if you offer me less than, say, three or four, I'm going to say, forget it. I don't want anything.
0: Right. Even though you're better off with three or four or two, say, than That's with, right. that with zero. That's right. You would right. want to punish me for failing to share properly with you.
1: That's right. And I will do that in a one-shot game, right? right? Even if I'm never going to see you again, even if I don't really know who you are, if you're anonymous behind some computer screen somewhere.
0: Right. I still feel that it's wrong. You still feel that it's wrong. That's right. To only get two of the ten.
1: Exactly. That's right. And that's what that's what we observe. And so there seems to be something about fairness, um, independent of repeated games, that we care about. Um, and... Uh, that is uh, an important part of, right. uh, you know, the social relationships. And then, the, you know, then we also make the point, okay, so now we know that we are social beings. Um, and so what does this mean, right? It means we have social preferences and we can use, for lack of a better word, social incentives to motivate people. Mm. You know, recognition, status, that matters a lot. And this can motivate doctors, healthcare providers, uh, all of us, you know. Right. Um, um, we also care about social norms, um, and this is a social norm, um, although it 's um, sometimes used kind of loosely you know um, basically consists of two parts: one is the idea that you ought to be doing something, the other is that many people in fact do do it mm. um, and we can uh, leverage this idea to change behavior um, an important area, say you know um, sanitation behavior you know sort of we, if we want to change that, we can leverage the idea that maybe this is something we ought to do, and that more and more people are doing it. And, uh, you know, there are other examples in the report. And then there's the idea of social networks, which is the idea that I might pay more attention to information if it comes from my friend or my neighbor, to people I regularly interact with, than from the government. Right. And that's, uh, you know, an important, uh, that
0: gives rise to an important set of um, policy levers as well. So this, again, uh, I'm sorry to harp on about this, still feels like it's completely consistent with conventional economics. We're just saying that people have preferences that include being social animals, that, that, you know, people are not, in fact, um, purely, uh, their preferences are not purely selfish to maximize their own income or food consumption or... You know their well their well-being includes the well-being of others, and that's obvious. People very obviously care about their family, for example, but they also care about people around them, and, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. But even if they weren't, I don't think anybody in economics has ever said that um, human preferences don't include the welfare of other people in their own preferences. So this is just a, a restatement of of that important principle isn't it it's not uh, that this this isn't a departure from what we all knew in microeconomics 101 is it
1: well i mean i think there you know if you look at utility functions if you you know looked a lot of them i would hazard to say that most of them uh, are about uh, individual utility right and not uh, group utility maybe family you know people are willing to allow um but the idea that there is altruism, is not commonly modeled. Okay. Even though it's sort of allowable in the field, it's not commonly modeled. Okay. Um, and in addition, I'd say that there is something about um, social norms, which is, I think, relatively new and perhaps inconsistent, You know, right. which is that people, you know, we, we sometimes in economics will talk about norms as a constraint, right? Sort of I will maximize this subject to a set of constraints, mm-hmm. a budget constraint, and then uh, and some sort of mm-hmm. a choice set that's finite. Um, But norms can be internalized, you know, so that they really sort of change what I want to do. Right. And they may be internalized in a way that's not necessarily about fulfilling, making Owen happy. You know, it's not, my my preferences may not be altruistic in a sense. They may be just, I want to conform. Right. I want to do what other people are doing. And in economics, we often think about this as, as a coordination problem, you know, because my payoffs are higher that may or may not, you know, that may be true, often it is, but there may be situations where I just want to conform because right. that's what social beings do. So I think that's relatively new.
0: And then let's move to the third part of the uh, of the story, which is uh, thinking with mental models. Yeah. What's, what's that about and what's an example of that?
1: So um, thinking with mental models is basically the idea um, that... Um, Information needs to be interpreted. um, When information comes to someone about, you know, uh, you know, um, let's say the behavior of a different ethnic group or different religious group, I'm likely to filter out information in systematic ways related to my views of the world. Um, We have mental models for um, health, mental models of other people, we have mental models of ourselves. Uh, a, a nice example, um, which is in the report in the chapter on climate change is the idea is, is the historical fact that when settlers came to Jamestown, Virginia um, they thought they could grow pomegranates, olives, mm. figs, tangerines that are um, that can be grown in southern Spain or Italy on the idea that temperature and climate is constant at any latitude. Mm. Um, it turns out not to be the case. But settlers persisted for 13 years, um, similarly, in, in trying to grow these products, um, these these crops. Similarly, people went to Newfoundland and thought it would be relatively warm, but it wasn't. And they persisted. You know, they kept on thinking, oh, this is an anomalously cold year. It's an anomalously cold year. Um, and they didn't really update their views. It took a long time because they had a, a view of what, what of how to Temperature is related to latitude, and climate is related to latitude. Um, there's a, a nice example also in the same chapter about how this really complicates our work, our understanding of climate change. Um, why do our views change so slowly? There, there's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a nice paper which um, makes the reasonable assumption that to really think that the climate has systematically changed, um, if you if you if you think that requires say three straight years where the average high is one standard deviation above the historical high, you know, if you calibrate that on on historical Mm. data, it will take 86 years to sort of update your views. And so we sort of have this idea and we fixate on it. in the case of climate change, it's not only about you know a sort of a um, scientific you know view, but it's it's a it becomes a tribal allegiance. you know? right. It becomes a, a marker of belonging. You know, I get my views from people I hang out with. They affect how I think about this model.
0: But that's also how scientific views get updated, right? It's also tribal allegiance. I mean, it wasn't that the the great idea of the paradigm shift that yeah. that you, you you know people ha- had a model and they persisted with it. Yeah. Uh, until you had an awful lot of evidence that there was something wrong with the model and then then the model undergoes a paradigm shift and the tribe moves to some other model yeah. and, and that persists until enough evidence accumulates that it needs to be updated. So it's not... Uh, science is yeah, guilty yeah. of the same... I mean, scientists are not all updating their Bayesian priors Every minute, uh, yeah. they're they're also undergoing these these periods of stability and then change. Aren't they? I mean, it, it, it
1: fair enough, fair enough, right? This is this is Thomas Kuhn's story, right. you know. Um, and I and I think um, the, the key difference may be that scientists um seem anyway to be using a fair amount of system two, you know, sort of analytic, right. deliberative thinking and arguing about this in developing standards for what constitutes enough evidence Mm. for a change in a fundamental view. Whereas the rest of us are reading the newspapers, we're sort of talking to our neighbours, the process by which we update our views is much more um, system-one-oriented, quick-thinking heuristics. Um, And and also the politics is a different kind of politics. So does
0: that make it more or less likely that we'd be fluid about it? If it's... I mean... uh, for example with there's there's a story that with social media and 24/7 news that people update their view of the world very quickly now yeah. and if people are thinking with system 1 they're interacting. They're much more networked than they used to be. Does that suggest that that no. our collective tribal view is now more fluid and more um, uh, moves around more quickly than it used to?
1: Yeah, I think probably not. And that's precisely okay. the heart of this, the thrust of this point about mental models. Right. I mean, even though the information, the external environment's changing, what is more, the durable dispositions. You know, sort of. You know, Bourdieu writes about this kind of thing. Sort of the internal, internalized mental models, don't take it in. You know, even if there's some new view that's constantly changing, you have to interpret the information, and those are relatively stable among people over over long periods of time. Um, not not the behavior doesn't change, but the fa- mental models are not easy to change.
0: And yet again, in conventional economics, our assumption has always been that. Um, people realize when their models are not delivering for them the results they want to deliver mm-hmm. uh, even if they don't uh, know exactly why and and that they will you know people won't be off the, won't be away from their optimum for long that they will collectively shift mm-hmm. you're saying actually that it takes a lot longer than that yeah um, that that you can be away from what you, you know you, you are you don't up, we don't update our models very quickly yeah. But that feels like an opportunity for arbitrage or it feels like it feels like there's a there's something that needs to be explained there. Why don't people why haven't we learned if it's costly to us not to update our mental models quickly, why haven't we learned to update them more quickly? Or what might what could we do to to learn to update them more quickly?
1: Yeah. So, um I guess two thoughts. One, it's very costly to update them, you know, along the lines we discussed, you know, earlier. Two, it's often in someone's interest that we not update them,
0: right?
1: Um, you know, there, there there are some studies. Uh, you know, Darwin Asimoglu, James Robinson, and others have have looked at uh, you know villages in, in India, in which villagers who are not doing well, you know, um, tend to uh, be very um, uh, favorably disposed mm-hmm. to the dominant landlords, uh, even though they're personally not doing well. And so, the story there is that there's a, you know that um, legitimacy follows power, you know, and it's it's in the interest of certain actors to sort of maintain a mental model, uh, and, and and you know when there's a variety of techniques, you know, uh, you know hegemony, all these kinds of things, you know, in, in which this is done. Um, um, so that's that's one thing and the other and the third point is that it's just um, hard to shake these habits of mind you know we have stereotypes about different races about other genders about different religious groups that are really hard to shake Um, and they sort of captivate the mind Um, uh, and and there's evidence that it sort of starts very early on Um, so I think that uh, the the standard economic story is you know um, uh, needs some refinement here (coughs)
0: You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barda, and my guest today is the co-director of this year's World Development Report, Varun Gowri. If you enjoy this podcast, you might also like to listen to the CGD podcast hosted by my colleague Rajesh Merchantani, which you can find in iTunes or on the CGD website or wherever you find good podcasts. In the next section, we're going to explore the relevance of all this to development economics. And then in the final section, we'll look at the implications for development professionals and development organisations. Uh, Varun, uh, the World Development Report, congratulations on on what people say is, is the most widely read WDR in years. Um, so congratulations on doing that. This is an important flagship publication for the World Bank. It reflects thinking that's going on in the economics profession and development economics but it also shapes it so this is this is an important it's important that there is a report on this topic this year um why did you why did you want to do something on behavioral science and behavioral economics for development specifically what's the, what's the connection between the things we've talked about and poverty and poor people and the world bank's mission of, of eliminating absolute poverty
1: Yeah. Um, So um, two thoughts on this. One is that there is really, you know, I think one of the reasons um, people have been interested in this report is that we're sort of riding the crest of a wave. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in this topic for several years. There are behavioral economics units in a number of governments now. Um, Richard Thaler has been president of the American Economic Association, so behavioral economics is really mainstream now. It's not some out there marginal, uh, you know, uh, subdiscipline. Um, and so there's general understanding that this can be useful for policy making. Right? Mm-hmm. And development policy is policy making, and so we should bring this into development economics in the way that it's been brought into you know the other other parts of the discipline. Um, The second part is that, the second thought is that there may be um, you know we've been talking about cognitive um, resources being scarce these may be this may be even a more important um, uh, constraint for poor individuals in what sense? Well, there are a lot of decisions that you and I make that are easy, right? If we want to save money, we can uh, have a standard um, uh, transfer from our checking account to our savings account or to a brokerage account. Um, uh, I, haven't, I have three kids, but I haven't thought about college education for a little while because I have, a five, you know, I have an automatic transfer that sort of thinks about this for me. Mm. Uh, poor individuals don't have this you know, modern financial products often. There are also a number of um, challenges related to just getting by. You know, uh, you know, organized childcare, um, you know, uh, is not available. Uh, basic things. if you like if you're in the informal sector, you know, where to sell your wares. You know, worrying about someone that might come harass you. You know, getting home, transportation, um, and these deplete cognitive resources. You know, uh, this cognitive uh, and and willpower resources. Um, there's a Terrifically engaging book by um, Senda Mulanathan and Elder Shafir, Mm -hmm. um, which looks at the problem of scarcity. One of the um, papers, one of the studies they cite in that paper, uh, in that book, is is one one of their own, which looked at sugarcane farmers in India. Um, They found that in this sample of sugarcane farmers, um, there was real difference in behavior and cognitive process pre- and post-harvest. Post-harvest is when there's cash, pre-harvest is when there's not. Pre-harvest, more than 90% of them had taken out loans. Post-harvest, I think I believe it was 4% to relatively small. Um, Similarly, they were much more likely to have pawned goods pre-harvest than post-harvest. Now, the interesting thing is that this has an impact on cognitive functioning as well. The same sugarcane farmer had a lower IQ test score during a resource scarce time pre-harvest than post-harvest. Ten points, actually. The same farmer. Ten points is a lot. You know, if I were to keep you up all night mm. and ask you to take a test, your IQ would drop about 12 or 13 points. So that's almost as much as a full night's sleep. And this is the result of all these demands, which are depleting cognitive resources. Um, so for poor individuals whom... The World Bank and other development agencies are trying to help, realizing that cognitive constraints are a problem is really important.
0: So it could be important in one of two ways. One way is um, people are poor, their cognitive resources are constrained, and that has bad effects for them uh, in a sense that um, uh, uh, it it makes their poverty, it means that um, poor people also suffer from. Um, making bad choices because they're poor and their cognitive resource constrained. The alternative version of this is that it's actually contributing to their poverty. That because they're, that in a sense, there's a poverty trap. They're poor, so they make bad choices, which means they stay poor. Is it is it the effects of is it the bad effects of of poor cognitive poor choices on the poor that's worrying you, or is it the thought that um, this is actually a cause of their poverty, and that if you could, if you, if you know, we've finally identified the constraint that if we could relax it, would enable people to lift themselves out of poverty. That, that the problem is cognitive scarcity, and we can relax that constraint, and then that that gets them on the on the virtuous path. Wh- which of these, which of these two views, or is it both that you're? Yeah, I would, I would say it's
1: certainly. I would say it's a bit of both. I mean, I'm not sure we have the evidence to suggest there's a real trap, you know. Um, but we do think that when you provide resources to support decision-making, people are more likely to make decisions in their best interest. You know, there right. are a number of studies like this. Um,
0: so that would increase their welfare, but not necessarily lift them permanently out of poverty. Yeah,
1: that's, that's sort of an empirical yeah. question. We're not quite right. there yet. You know? right. but, but we do think that um, they're more likely to you know, enroll in school, to take health medication they themselves have asked for and have at home if they're reminded to do so, for instance. And so the the general implication is that it would be useful to move decisions out of periods when people are short on cognitive resources, or if you can't do that, to support those decisions. Through, I gave the example of the you know the Tangier documentation, but there are a variety of things that can be done along along those lines. You know, we, for instance, in the area in the case of uh, conditional cash transfers, we don't think enough about timing. Right. Um, the timing may matter. There's there's a nice study in Bogota, in which a conditional cash transfer was partly deferred and paid in arrears to individuals right before the decision to matriculate into universities. That had, a, I think, I believe a 49%, that led to a 49% increase in matriculation rates. You know, sort of holding some money back to sort of signal to people that, oh, you know, now, now's an important time, you have some money, you can afford this, um, because they weren't necessarily saving that money by themselves.
0: Do we have a sense of the size of these effects? I mean, uh, uh, to, if it's welfare increasing to, um, assist people um, by reducing the effects of their constrained cognitive resources in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, a, that sounds like a relatively cheap thing to do, yeah. but B, it doesn't sound... I mean, I, I'm i not sure that if I had a 10% reduction in my uh, measured IQ, I'm not sure I believe in IQ tests, but you know, whatever that's measuring, yeah. I'm not sure how big an effect that would have on my welfare. So I make worse choices about you know how I manage my day but does that mm-hmm. does that is is fixing that presumably only in part fixing that actually going to increase my welfare by enough to make this a sensible intervention for us to worry about or is this a is this quite a marginal effect
1: yeah well the effects are substantial but they're even more substantial when you think about the relatively low cost of the interventions. You know, changing the timing of a transfer costs very little. Right. Some of these, you know, little text messages that remind people to take their medication, that costs very little. Right. You know, changing, you know, uh, when government communicates, it could sort of change a little letter. You know, right. uh, and that, you know, some of these examples show that including a sentence about how many other people are paying their taxes increases likely the individuals will pay their taxes by a few percent. Well, it's not a huge effect, but... It costs nothing to add a sentence to a letter.
0: So listeners who are interested in this should read Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein, which is full of examples of this kind, um, of of these kind of low-cost but apparently quite effective. Well, they should also read the WDR. And they should read the WTR as well. (laughs) Which has
1: a set of development
0: examples. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so these are relatively low-cost, but you're not claiming that the effects on welfare are as large as, say, a vaccination program would be. Um, Well, you are. Uh well
1: okay so um let me throw out some numbers you know right. at you okay so um in one study in Kenya um changing the timing of delivery of fertilizers mm-hmm. was equivalent to a 50% increase to equivalent to a 50% subsidy okay. you know if you, if you delivered you know that, so that that made an impact um in one experiment in Mysore in India data entry clerks were observed to be Uh, who were paid piece rate for typing things correctly, Mm -hmm. you know, would sort of increase their piece rate right before holidays when they needed Mm -hmm. money. They were asked to, if they wanted to sign up for a commitment contract, where they would receive slightly lower wages if they failed to meet their own targets. Um, This increased productivity by 6%, which was the increase, which was the equivalent of an 18% increase in wages, right? So compared to paying people to work harder... um, or paying people to take up a program or to use uh, uh, um, technological input like fertilizer it's a it's it's pretty effective you know and, and those magnitudes are relatively large
0: so in the forward to the WDR Jim Kim seems to suggest uh, that the main relevance for development policy of all this is a improving service delivery uh, and B um, climate change how, how we think about global norms and global agreements mm-hmm. now Obviously he's your boss, so he is by definition right <laughs> um, but is that are those the two areas in which you see this having uh, important implications this is this is service delivery and getting to global agreements such as on climate change is that is that is that where we should look for progress from this
1: yeah, so one could you know think about sort of um where we are now and where we might be in, in, right. you know in, in sometime in the future um Service delivery is a clear area where this is relevant because people, as we've been discussing, don't take advantage of opportunities available to them because right. they forget, they don't, you know, paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, conditional cooperation is an important lever to use in getting to um, agreements of various right. sorts. Um, you know, climate change is one. There's research on, you know, uh, about conflict between, say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who are different sides of a, of a war, mm-hmm. and that that's, that's sort of that's it, it could potentially be useful there. Um, that's you know, th- th- those are areas where we have um, uh, um, good evidence. Mm-hmm. This is important. Um, there's also you know emerging areas. Um, and say in the area of aspirations, which we haven't really talked about so much, mm-hmm. you know, we think about this in terms of you know a mental model of yourself. You might think if you're low caste, this is my only place in life. But there are, are now interventions which suggest that interventions can be changed through messaging, emotional messaging, you know, through entertainment, education, mm-hmm. through media. Um, people attribute the fertility decline in Brazil to soap operas. You know, in part, mm. uh, there's research in India that shows that you know exposure to modern cable TV was related to increased women's increasing women's autonomy and lower rates of gender-based violence. There's an ch- extremely intriguing example um, from California in which um, young African American students in seventh grade were asked to perform some uh, self-affirmation exercises. Um, and this result for about you know an hour, I think half hour, early in seventh grade, and this resulted in higher grades a year and a half later. The thought being that most kids' grades decline in eighth grade, um, but if you're uh, African American, you may have a self stereotype, which you think, oh, "Of course, this would happen to me." Mm. But this insulated people against this kind of um, stereotype. Um, so that's another, you know, another area. Another area which we haven't talked about yet is an early childhood uh, development, right? Um, because some of these um, orientations. Um, and cognitive skills emerge at a very young age. And so there's an agenda related to helping parents who don't um, um, engage in cognitive stimulation um, providing support. You know, and there's good evidence from Jamaica that this really makes a difference for, to outcomes um, uh, a good while later. And then there's a sort of very long-term agenda in which, you know, we know that, say, trust in governments is very important for a variety of outcomes. So we've been, we've you know, been aware of this for some time. We don't quite know yet whether that's amenable to behavioral interventions, but maybe. You know, law abidingness, trust, mm. corruption—these all sort of have a social norms element and a cognitive element to them. And so we may, down the road, have a set of interventions in that area too. So while, you know, my president is certainly right. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> there's a longer term, there's a medium term and longer term agenda here as well.
0: Right. Excellent. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, from the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today is Varun Gowri, and we're talking about this year's World Development Report, Mind, Society and Behaviour, of which Varun was the co-director. So we're coming now to the third and final section, which is looking at the relevance of this, as we were just beginning to get into, the relevance of this to development professionals and development organisations. Now, the forward, Jim Kim's forward to the WDR, suggests that um, one reason why we should be careful about, we should be thinking about this research is because it reminds us of the biases and um, harmful effects of heuristics that we ourselves apply as development professionals. Hmm. Can you say something about that?
1: Yeah, that was, that was a particularly fun part of the report to work on. Um, uh All of us are subject to biases, right? All of us are subject to these cognitive limitations. All of us are subject to social norms, and we all carry around mental models of Mm. the world. And that by no means are development professionals excluded from uh, this universal fact of human nature. To illustrate this, we did a survey of World Bank staff. Um, We um, were interested in a a couple particular biases. The the one which is perhaps most striking was one called confirmation bias. Mm This is the tendency to discount information that is contrary to our priors and overvalue information that conforms to those priors. Um, Dan Kahan Law School uh, with Don Brayman and others have done some work on what they call cultural cognition, Mm -hmm. um, which is a version of confirmation bias. Um, And we uh, tweaked their experiment and applied it to World Bank staff. We um, sent around... um, In this survey, online survey, um, information in a two-by-two table about skin cream and minimum wages. The table was identical in the two different framings. In one case, it was about whether skin cream A or skin cream B is more likely to uh, eliminate a rash. In another framing, it was about whether the minimum wage is likely to raise or lower poverty rates, which is a contested issue Mm -hmm. in economics, of course. World Bank staff were more likely... Uh, about 20% more likely to get the answer right in the skin cream framing than in the minimum wage framing. Um, and you might say, well, that's surprising because this, they're experts in this area. Um, but it didn't happen despite the fact that they're experts. It happened because, because they're experts, right. right? They thought they knew the answer and then didn't really do the math. We also asked World Bank staff about their uh, views on wage equality. hmm and found that the errors that people are made were systematically related to their political priors. So there's evidence of confirmation bias in, among World Bank staff. Uh, we replicated the survey with a sample in DFID, almost identical results there. So bank staff have this tendency to bring their mental models to information that they collect.
0: As does everybody. I mean, we're not sure. having a go at... But- Bank and DFID staff, they don't,
1: they don't professionals more generally, like like all experts, uh, themselves are subject to biases.
0: So well-run organizations need to deal with that, right? They need to acknowledge that that's happening and adjust their behavior in some way to cope with that. What what is it that organizations like the bank or diffid should do, given your finding of these, in this case, confirmation bias? Yeah. So um,
1: one thought. Or a couple of thoughts. One is that peop- if if experts themselves use system one and quickly come to a jump mm. to a conclusion, we need to slow them down and get them to think more analytically and deliberatively. Which means allowing space for it. Which means more rigorous testing evaluation of projects. Um, it also mean and that so that's one thought and one of our just on that I, yeah.
0: you had this wonderful example of the uh, bat and the ball that together cost a dollar ten yeah and and the question our listeners can work this out in their heads if if the bat costs 10 cents more than the ball how one much one dollar more one dollar more what yeah. did I say 10 cents? Yeah. The, the bat costs one dollar more than the uh than the ball what does the ball cost and what does the bat cost that's right that's and right. your your instinct is to say well obviously the bat costs a dollar and the the ball costs 10 cents and it's
1: yeah, that's right. right,
0: and that's the and incorrect answer.
1: That's the incorrect answer. Obviously, it's a dollar five and, and five cents because that adds up to a dollar ten. But most people get this wrong, you know. In studies, no, I did you know, as <laughs> I read it. <laughs> you know, it's statistics students at top universities get this wrong. Right. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of examples of things like this. You know. Right. Um, so
0: you need to slow people down by right. doing what? Um,
1: by um, requiring careful review of evidence. Um, in a variety of ways. Um, in the context of whether projects are working or not, um, more evidence, more evaluation, including randomized evaluation, is useful. More multi-arm treatments are useful to sort of help people figure out what works. Do you want to figure out if the minimum wage lowers or raises poverty rates, actually test it. You know, don't, don't have these assumptions. That's one general recommendation, sort of rely more on an analytic thinking and evidence. Um, the second is to harness our natural tendency to be uh, advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a view that we are natural-born lawyers, not natural-born scientists. Mm. Um, and so we want to sort of you know, prove something. Um, and that's not the same thing as getting out the truth. Um, and so, you know, in, in a lot of organizations, you have something called red teaming. Right. Right, you know, like the military does this in war games, uh, you know, and this sort of harnesses the fact that people really want to advocate from one point of view, and you have two teams sort of taking a point of view, and the decision maker hears the best arguments. Um, development organizations could also do a better job with peer review. You know, I think we you know, we try and get at this, this problem of slower thinking with peer review, but it tends not to be... Anonymous, You know, it tends to be we find our friends, our colleagues who we have worked with in the past to sort of review our work. Um, um, so that's uh, a set, set of things that could be done. An- another uh, bias, mm-hmm. you know, that development professionals are subject to and experts generally are subject to um, is the thought, um, is is that um, uh, we may have different and incorrect models of how poor individuals think and behave. Um, so we, we asked... Uh, um, World Bank staff to predict how poor individuals in Nairobi and Lima and Jakarta would answer a set of questions. One of them was um, about whether they feel in control of their own lives. In other words, whether they feel helpless. Another was whether vaccines are risky because they can cause sterilization. Mm-hmm. Um, World Bank staff um, estimated that about 42% of poor individuals in Nairobi would agree with the statement that vaccines are risky because they can cause sterilization. In fact, it was just 11%. Right. So we, you know, we we don't necessarily, um, uh, you know, we have good measures of poverty, but not necessarily mindsets, you know? And so, uh, and that, if we believe mindsets are important, then we should actually measure them in our work and begin to um, uh, become aware of of how people think and choose.
0: So an interesting part of the report, um, to me, because I'm very interested in the notion of adaptation and evolution of, of project management... Was the idea that that part of the answer to this might be more adaptive project management, uh, you know, less planning at the beginning, less of the kind of log frame or theory of change approach, and more trying stuff, seeing what works, and letting the project evolve? Yeah, is 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 that a more promising avenue than trying to have the individuals in the World Bank or in DFID or in other organisations overcome their cognitive biases? Is it is it better to try and take their cognitive biases out of The equation as best we can. uh, Tell me how that's how that's going in the World Bank and and what can be done there.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. I can't say which is more promising. I think I think you'll find cognitive scientists who say to you that it's very hard to debias people on an individual level, Um, and uh, maybe we need to sort of harness groups. You know, to sort of reinforce. You know, when, this, when it becomes part of a group standard routine, you sort of reinforce mm-hmm. uh, the contrary action for individuals. Um, so uh, we are interested, you know, we do make the case in the report that we need more adaptive interventions and more adaptive uh, design. Um, uh, we need to sort of think about mindsets and cognitive limitations in designing projects and sort of really carefully diagnose what our problem is, you know, and, and think mm-hmm. about the behavior of... In at stake, you know. So it's not just, you know, people don't go to school, but you know, um, uh, they're scared to go to school because of the threat of violence. You know, and sort of really get at what's underneath it.
0: But I wondered whether we just by doing by going for the adaptive version, we don't just shift the problem to um, our biases when we when we make the adaptation. So if something isn't working, and we're trying to figure out why it's not working to adapt. Uh, the intervention to make it work better, and if, you know, if we're bringing all our biases to the table in understanding what's working, and what isn't working, and in making choices about how the uh, how the program adapts and evolves, then it seems to me we we're still uh, constrained by our biases, isn't
1: it? It could be, you know, but evidence helps. I mean, right. there's a, there's a you know to give you an example, there's a nice set of experiments on uh, water that the Poverty Action Lab conducted, you know, and and um, there were. You know, three different treatments, three versions of intervention, um, which were used to get out, uh, getting people to um, consume uh, cleaner water. You know, in one, uh, the ground springs were protected, you know, with Mm -hmm. concrete and and pipes. Um, In another, chlorine was delivered to the home so that individuals would dechlorinate at home. In the third, a chlorine dispenser was located right next to the well itself. Now, ex-ante, you don't really know which of those is going to be better. You know, you probably, you know, given you may have a strong prior, you know. Um, It turned out that what worked was the um, dispenser right next to the source. Um, Some of the problems with the improved well is that individuals would then collect the clean water in a container, which was itself contaminated, or mix it with contaminated Mm -hmm. water at home. A problem with the home delivery of chlorine is that people would forget to then keep asking for the deliveries, Whereas when the dispenser was right near the source, it was a reminder to people to decline right when they got there. So, you know, one of the challenges of this area is that we don't have a simple theory. Right. You know, in, in standard economics, you know, you raise prices, people want less, and they supply more. You know, it's mostly true and right. mostly powerful. We don't know what is, you know, what if we make things more salient, what's going to happen? What does it even mean to make something? 10% more salient. How do you measure that? And so we need to, we need to be relentlessly empirical as a result.
0: But you right, but but if we are ourselves subject to these biases and mm-hmm. we get data that doesn't fit our mental model, mm-hmm. as we've just spent the first part of the podcast talking about, we yeah. don't in fact adjust our mental model. We uh, we stick lo- we stick with our mental model long after it's yeah. uh, useful time. So mm-hmm. Uh, as you say, de- uh, you know, evidence helps, but it doesn't actually overwhelm our biases very often.
1: Well, there's a, there's a set of uh, you know there's a set of political economy considerations about um, evaluation. You know, I mean, I, confronted with this very clear data, you know, I think most experts, development professionals, would agree that okay, we should use the one that's most cost effective, and so we should, in this instance, you know, put the chlorine dispenser next to the source, you know, for people in this situation anyway in this in this time and place um, but often we don't um, have the time or the resources to conduct these evaluations right. or to then assimilate what they mean you know and uh, you know people have written about um, the fact you know the political economy reasons why organizations don't devote enough time to evaluation sometimes people don't want to know the truth you know um, other times uh, there's sort of a lending imperative or there's sort of a publicity imperative of showing success. And these things can get in the way. Um, um, so listeners
0: it's- who want to know more about that should read CGD's uh, report on the evaluation gap, which both looks at and tries to explain why there's uh, not enough rigorous impact evaluation. Absolutely. I want to move on to uh, this question of of the role of external actors, development professionals, external aid agencies, in nudging in in uh, and there's been a lot of controversy uh, some controversy within our own countries about the role of government in what um uh, Cass Sunstein called uh, libertarian uh, paternalism yeah this kind of this notion of benign paternalism that changing the order, you know putting the salads at the front of the lunch queue rather than at the end of the lunch queue is still giving people a choice. It's still libertarian, but it's nudging people to do things that are good for them. And it seems to me there isn't a consensus about um, the extent to which we want governments to do that for us. Um, uh, Still less, I imagine, is there a consensus about the extent to which um, World Bank staff and DFID staff should be nudging people in the developing world to do what we consider to be good for them. So can you say something about... Whether you know, To what extent do you think it's clear that there is a role for external actors yeah. in this be- benign paternalism?
1: Yeah, um, You're right to say that there isn't a consensus yet, right? And whatever we think of this on philosophical grounds or welfare grounds, we need to be aware that people disagree on the value and validity of external actors uh, nudging shaping the choice architecture. Um, to guide decisions in a certain way. Given that there's disagreement, I think we need to be um, uh, very clear about uh, disclosing what we're doing and having a public discussion about what's going on. And we also need to um, base these decisions on good evidence. So that's sort of the, you know, the sort of process uh, that that I think we would be supportive of. Um, not hiding it, having a public discussion, and recognising that there's disagreement, and trying to, you know, base decisions on solid evidence.
0: The hard thing about this is that you're um, going beyond people's revealed preference and postulating that their revealed preference is not a good indicator of, in some sense, their underlying preference, that what they would choose if they... Were if their cognitive resources weren't so constrained, or if they had more information, or they were to step outside their mental models for a while, and that's hard to have good evidence. Uh, you know, it always sounds dangerous to me uh, when we when we get into the business of false consciousness of thinking that uh, that, that what people actually choose, given a free choice. Right. Is, in some se- is in our view not what they would really choose if uh, I- in a different situation and we're going to nudge them to something else. That's quite a hard thing f- for us to have evidence about, isn't it?
1: Well, I-, I guess I would disagree with that a little bit, you know, um, in a sense that a, a, a good chunk of what we're talking about here are helping people obtain their already expressed goals. Um, if you send someone a text reminder to take their HIV-AIDS medication weekly. Um, It may bump up compliance with the treatment regimen from 40% to 53%, right? The person has already got the medicine. They're just forgetting to take it. Um, If someone tells you they want to save money and they just sort of don't necessarily, you know, uh, save a reminder, you know, it's sort of helping them along in, in something they've already decided they want to do. Similarly, commitment mechanisms in which people... Um, sign up to suffer a penalty if they don't save or don't eat healthy are optional. People don't have to sign up for them, but they do. And when they do, um, they then are helping themselves uh, achieve their goal. So a good chunk of what we're talking about is, in fact, consistent with revealed preference. Um, Another point is that there may be situations where things are somewhat more ambiguous but there's no, you know, as, as Sunstein and Thaler, right, there's no neutral here sometimes, right? There's no, if you're setting up, if you're communicating with people um, uh, or if you're setting up a program in which you're signing up for a water hookup or, a, you know, a health program, you can make it complicated or easy, right? That's Why not make it easy to sign up, you know? Um, if you're setting up a default option, Uh, You know, default options Mm. for savings are well known. You know, you have to either say you automatically enroll in retirement savings or you don't, or you automatically, you know, have 10% of your paycheck saved or 2% of your paycheck saved. Someone has to set that. And so given that there's no way of not nudging, you might as well do things in ways that are consistent with people's own interests, the libertarian paternalist would say, but then also allow people to then opt out if they in fact don't want to save 11% towards savings. So that's, there, a, that's another chunk of things we're talking about. But
0: there's something uncomfortably unaccountable about technocrats from the World Bank, um, and I, I'm not having a go at the World Bank, or DFID, or USAID, or anybody else from the outside, um, being... Uh, influential in setting the defaults right i mean isn't setting the defaults part of what a community should do for itself yeah Where, whether it's you know pension opt outs or all the things we're talking about yeah there, there's something uncomfortable about the idea of of unaccountable outsiders um doing this isn't there
1: Well, it's sort of a loaded question, I think. (laughs) I mean, uh, we have to be careful not to reify community, right? Right. I mean, it's not as if there are no conflicts of interest within a community. Uh, And if someone's setting the defaults in a community, it's not obvious they're going to choose the one that's welfare-maximizing. They might do it, you know, to to benefit certain parties and not others. Um, And, of course, it's important to work with governments, with civil society organizations, and, you know, with communities also to... um, uh, work out what makes sense. Um, uh, you can't come at this without evidence. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the crucial pieces of evidence is what people you know, them, they themselves say they want. Um, and then the, just the, the final oh, but point. But
0: we come, to, as you said yourself, we come to this with our biases too. So sure. the danger is that we're setting the nudges and setting the defaults according right. to our. You're absolutely right. Within a community, there are right. um, constraints and biases and interests, right. as there are in our communities.
1: Yeah. So here's where we come down in the report, which is that, you know, it's sort of a a Martian Sen capabilities view of freedom and human rights, Mm -hmm. which is that we should be using this to support basic, widely agreed upon human capabilities. We want people to be healthier. We want people to go to school. Um, We want people not to be poor, right? In some sense, the World Bank's mission to end poverty is a paternalistic mission, right? You can't get around that. Development is a paternalistic right. project. If you disagree with it, well, then let's have a different conversation. But if, if you buy into it, then, you know, on some of these core questions, I think we can say, there, you know, there's wide agreement, and we should, uh, shouldn't feel shy about doing it. It's also the case that it's not as if choices are unconstrained, absent outside of the government coming in. There's a nice example in, in the report about um, in Tanzania, uh, people decided to get people to sign up for community health insurance at the time they had money, you know, rather than you know, you, when do you send, to have a campaign mm-hmm. to get people to sign up? Why not do it when they when they have some cash, you know, after harvest? And, 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 and you might think, well, oh, that's sort of uh, taking advantage of them. But if you hadn't been asking them to sign up for community health insurance – other vendors would have been selling their wares to these people with advertising, with influencing, you know, uh, taking right. advantage of it. So it's not as if, if the World Bank and governments and, you know, different and everyone else steps back, there's going to be, you know, um, free sovereign individuals making totally uninfluenced choices. There's, there's, you know, the private sector, there's lots of other people I- involved, and why not do it for the public good?
0: so i 'm coming to the final uh, question, um, which is about the the place of this in broader development policy. Yeah. There was a blog um, I think by um, Jeffrey Hammer uh, on one of the blank, on one of the World Bank blogs. Incidentally, the World Bank blogs, if people are not reading them. Are just a terrific uh, model of how organisations should communicate and think publicly, and, it's, uh, and so he said. I, I, I imagine that you were, um, uh, thought it a fairly disobliging blog post, which said um, that he'd been at a, an IGC, an International Growth Centre conference, with uh, where the chief minister of Punjab uh, had criticised economists for offering you know these small scale tweaks of the kind that we're talking about, although you've made the case that they're bigger than that makes them sound, um, when what he really needs is help with making big decisions and the big financial resources. You know, how much should I be spending on education? Should we be investing in a, a dam or infrastructure? You know, these are... And if, do you feel as if, uh, through this report, the World Bank is drifting away from Addressing what Lauren Pritchett here at the center would call, the, you know the, the big development questions, the things that we ought to be engaged in, in favor of uh, I hesitate to call them second-order things, but things that look less or, that are more to do with improving people's welfare in whatever situation they're in, and less to do with driving big socioeconomic economic change in developing countries. I mean, is there a yeah. sense in which this is a, a sideshow?
1: Yeah, that, that we certainly, you know, often get a question like that. And, uh, you know, a couple of points. Um, first, um, many of these interventions are relatively low cost. You know, we've discussed this, you know, tweaking a letter, sending a reminder, setting up a commitment device, showing a movie, self-affirmation exercises, you know. Right. So why not do this? Right? As well as? As well as everything else, right? right. They, they're not necessarily rivals, Um, We could sort of say, well, we need to figure out a, uh, you know, a successful growth strategy for a country. We need to figure out how to make governance work, you know, which I believe in, but good luck with that, you know. Mm -hmm. While we're working on all that, why don't we go ahead and make our current projects and programs more effective for relatively low cost, right? That strikes me as relatively uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. It's not displacing the chief minister of Punjab's questions, but saying, look, let's work on that, but also do this. Um, the second point is that, as I said earlier, it may be the case that this agenda provides important insights for the chief minister's question. We're not quite there yet, but we, we know we may. And this was posed to us, you know, Ravi Kanbor, when we presented mm. the report. Once said, "Well, look, tell me why China is China, right? That's the big question. It's not really about this kind of stuff." And uh, you know, it's a fair point. Um, at the same time, you know, when China. Uh, move towards parts of private property, it didn't do so radically. It sort of was cognizant of social realities, you know, and, and privatized in kin groups, you know, and in small collectives. And was, you know, some of the um, moves there were, um, obviously the report wasn't written, behavioral economics wasn't around, but, you know, the, the idea of social uh, relationships has been around for a long time. And so it may be the case that large-scale growth strategies themselves might be informed by this. Um, Things like law-abidingness and trust in government may be informed by this as well. So I think that the large questions also may eventually benefit from this research agenda.
0: You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, from the Centre for Global Development. And my guest today has been Varun Gowri. Uh, the co-director of this year's world development report Mind, Society and Behaviour and if it isn't uh, obvious from the conversation uh, please do go and read this it's available online uh, and at uh, a small number of good bookshops Baron, <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming on Development Drums
1: Thanks Owen, I enjoyed it
0: If <laughs> you
1: you do it I, 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 I. so